in Genesis chapter 8, well, just briefly, and it will be chapter 9 and 10. Of course, in our last message and study, we looked at the flood, its purpose, and its result. And now in Genesis 8, in verse 22, there was a promise given to Noah as part of the Noah covenant. And it says, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Now you'll notice the first phrase is while the earth remaineth. That's an ominous little prediction there, but it's carried from this point all the way to the book of Revelation for very good reason. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for your word, and I just ask, Lord, that you'll help us not to be distracted and that nothing be between us and you, Lord, so that we can hear what the Spirit says to the church, that your word says to each heart. And we know, Father, we just sang it a moment ago, trust and obey, but we have to know what to trust and to know your will and your word. Help us tonight to know more of it and even better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's look at it again, verse 22. While the earth remaineth, sea time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Obviously, this is an indication that everything changed. Everything in this earth or this world changed after the flood. The world as we know it right now, tonight, is not the same as the world as Adam and Eve or even Enoch knew it. Thus, in those days, of course, before the flood, there were longer lifespans. It's right here in the Bible. It's, you know, reptiles continue to grow until they die. So if they could live for 200, 300 years, they're going to grow into these giant reptiles that are now called dinosaurs and fossils of ferns that people discover today are measured in feet, not in inches, because everything grew as long as it was alive. But then came the flood. And the flood is this global catastrophic event that changed virtually everything, obviously, in the physical material world. But that's not all. Let's keep reading. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you or food for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. Now think about this for a moment. Now, the Bible says, there is a, a greater fear of man in the animal world. Uh, this did not exist before. We read earlier when we were doing our study that Adam named the animals. They came by. Even Noah had them come by and go on the ark. And so now they're fish. Fish and poultry is used for meat. Probably explains some of the fear that the animal kingdom has of man. This is not to say that nobody ate meat before the flood because we know that Lamech had sons who were cattle ranchers and the Canaanites did a lot of things that were not right or permitted by God. But here, God permits the eating of meat, which brings us to one of the more puzzling and one of the more questioned incidents I know from God's people here in this foundational book. It involves the very first years of Noah and his family when they came off of that ark. Now, as we noted a moment ago, most everything physically, materially changed because of the flood. Remember, Hebrews 11:7 says, Noah warned of God of things not seen as yet. He was warned about things that had never been seen or had never happened as yet on the earth. 
You remember last week we studied verse 13. I do set my bow in the cloud. It shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. The rainbow, I don't know, may or may not have ever been seen before the flood, but now everything in the earth's atmosphere has changed. The breaking up the fountains, what that must have been like, and the waters that were, were above the firmament, creating this Garden of Eden throughout the entire planet, this greenhouse effect, if you will, has come down. Now there are seasonal changes with cold fronts and clouds and with the occasional rainbows. And so God takes that beautiful rainbow. And I'll remind you again that this bow, the word bow in this verse, it doesn't say rainbow. That word bow is, is the bow of war. It is a battle bow. And it's that Hebrew word is used as a battle bow all the way through the Old Testament. And as it appears in the sky, when we look at it, the bow is sort of put away. There's no arrow in it. The arrow was spent. If anything, it was shot into the heart of God, and it faces heavenward. And it was intended to be a reminder that God made a covenant, that God looks at it and remembers, and so that we would have comfort from that. It's another physical, spiritual reminder that everything has changed. Look at verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah. And of them was the whole earth overspread. Now let's just stop here for a moment. Noah and his wife had three sons that were on that ark. Each of those sons also had a wife. And by these three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, verse 19 says, of them was the whole earth overspread. That simply means that they obeyed the mandate and the command back in verse 1, be fruitful, multiply, replenish. That was the command at the beginning of the chapter. In fact, before we look at Noah's, the story that I mentioned a moment ago, his drunkenness, I want you to notice what chapter 10 is all about. And all you have to do is glance at it. Verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. The son of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madog. Notice, just glance at it. Look over it. Go verse after verse. You'll see it's a genealogy. In fact, what you actually have in this chapter is the oldest record of antiquity of the table of nations. The book of Genesis, once again, is the foundation. And it gives us the real answer, the only real answer, for the dispersion of the tribes and thus the nations. And sure enough, folks, all the problems, for example, right now and for centuries in the Middle East, as far as lands and tribes and kin and territories are concerned, all of it, every bit of it can be traced back to the three sons of Noah. Let's go back, for example, to chapter 9. And I want you to notice again this very familiar, I think often misunderstood story. Verse 20, and Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, intoxicated, and he was uncovered within his tent. Now, a couple of observations here. First of all, we don't, we're not told how long this was after Noah got off the ark. I mean, certainly it's been long enough for Noah to, to work, to labor, to buy, get some land and work that land and plant a vineyard and then now reap the fruits the benefits of all of his labors. So it's been a while. And you know, in Noah's defense, he may not have realized under the new atmospheric conditions, the new weather conditions, how quickly grapes and its juice would ferment. The very first time that wine is ever mentioned in the Bible is right here. 
First time in Scripture, and not surprisingly, guess what it does? It causes trouble. And the trouble is Noah gets intoxicated. And what usually is associated with drunkenness. Well, I can tell you what's associated with usually. No inhibition. I'm talking about drunkenness. No inhibitions, no discernment, no self-control, no sense of modesty, and therefore the potential for shame. In this case, a very godly, dignified old man, a patriarch, a prophet, and a father is both drunk and, the Bible says, unclothed. Remember, you lose your inhibitions and your senses. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Now, as most of you know, a lot of things have been sort of read into this story that are frankly just a bunch of conjecture, and you should throw it all out. Just read what it says. What simply happens here is that one of Noah's sons saw his father in this condition, and then he blabbed it. That's it. He told his brothers about it. And of course, he did so either with derision or jesting, either of which was a breach of family etiquette and a mockery of his father's authority as a patriarch and a prophet. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? How do you know Ham's motives were wrong in telling his brothers? Well, there's a couple reasons. For one thing, verse 22, you'll notice, calls him what? Ham, the father of Canaan. It's the same line at the end of verse 18, Ham, the father of Canaan. Do you know it doesn't say Shem, the father of Ebal, or Japheth, the father of Gomer? No, it says the, it's the, he's the only one that's referred to as a father, and specifically the father of Canaan who would follow in this man's footsteps in the many, many generations to come. So that Ham did more than just tell his brothers. He told them with some sort of malice or mockery as a father himself. That's the emphasis here. He's a father. He should have known better. He should have had more respect, but that's not all. Verse 23. And Shem and Japheth took the garment, took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. In other words, Ham told people, blabbed it about their father, knowing that Noah was still in that condition, drunken and clothed, knowing he was still there, he just left him there as a spectacle. The other boys, however, showed respect, decency. You know, the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. In 1 Corinthians, the Christians should have mourned. You should have mourned, Paul said. Instead of being puffed up, a godly person, he said, quote, concealeth a matter. And so this man, Ham, he sort of shows his irreverence, his impudence, which is a reminder again that those who came off of that ark really weren't that much better than the ones who refused to get on that ark. The waters of the flood did not cleanse away man's nature, which brings us to chapter 10, because chapter 10 gives two of the most significant narratives not just in Scripture, but in all of human history. You know, if you want to talk about foundations tonight, where everything began, how does it explain what we're in, where we are, and how we are in these days, understand the present and the future. If you really want to, here it is. Chapter 9, verse 29. And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Verse 10, or chapter 10. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem... Ham and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after 
the flood. Now, folks, if you'll take just a moment and, again, scan your eyes over chapter 10. You're going to notice immediately that it's a genealogy. It's one name after another after another genealogy of the descendants of the heirs of Noah's three sons. By the way, if you really want to get into ethnology and you want to see where the three sons of Noah settled, and how is that even possible? It's more than possible. There are some very detailed, awesome scholarly works on the table of the nations. One by H.S. Miller is fantastic, and it's, it's very helpful. But in a nutshell, it's this. Let me just do it really quick. Japheth had sons who became the Slavs, the Russians, the, the Croatians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and so forth. Ham had a son named Canaan whose sons became the Phoenicians, the Hittites, the Jebusites. He also had a, name, a son named Cush, as you know, from which come the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, and of course then the sons of Shem. Sons of Shem would be the Semitic people, the Elamites, the Arabians, the Jews, and so forth, all came from him. And again, it can be extremely complicated, table of nations as you look at it through history. It can be detailed, and the brain can get a little fuzzy if you look at it too long. It's what happened to my brain when I looked at it too long, and I thought, I'm not going to teach it on a Wednesday night. It's not necessary. One thing that isn't fuzzy, however, is something we read in the middle of this genealogy. Chapter 10, and again, it's one name after another, right? Look at verse 6. And the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Foot, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, and so it goes all the way to verse 8. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be mighty one, a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. It was a saying, in other words. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. In other words, look, folks, it didn't take terribly long before man decides to build himself a kingdom. And of course, this kingdom called Babel is described more fully in chapter 11, which means that chronologically, chapter 11 actually comes be chronologically before chapter 10. I have a chronological Bible. My professor, um, when I was in Bible college, actually, um, it's famous, put it together. So in other words, in chapter 10, Moses goes on to write the entire table of nations about centuries and for centuries covering them. But the Tower of Babel occurs only in this genealogy, early in the genealogy, before the dispersion of nations. So let me just say that the story of Babel, we just read that word a moment ago, that all that happens there is probably the most significant thing to occur after the flood. Babylon, we're familiar with that term, right? Babylon gets its name and its roots in Babel. Babylon, remember last summer? Babylon is the name that God gives to the last earthly kingdom in the book of Revelation. Babylon is the one that Satan is trying to bring back together now. So here's a man by the name of Nimrod. He's a son of Cush. He's a son of Ham. And Nimrod is going to make a name for himself and bear in mind the people of the world at this point they're all together basically they're all of one language they're all under sort of Nimrod's leadership and they're gathering together in one location the land of Shinar this goes against God's plan remember what God said scatter go that's not what he says that's not what they're going to say the expression by the way in verse 9 two times you'll see it says 
that Nimrod was a mighty hunter, what? Before the Lord. If you look at the Hebrew construct, that means basically, in uh, today's terms, in your face. It wasn't, it was like, I'm doing this in the eyes of God. Just try to stop me, so to speak. Nimrod was a defiant man. And the beginning of his kingdom, verse 10, was Babel. And of course, he didn't call it Babel. That would be God's doing sometime later. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. That they, and they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad. Notice that line? Lest we do God's will. What was God's will? Scatter, replenish, go. They're saying, let's do this lest we're scattered abroad. Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city. In other words, the whole purpose here in building this, this tower was to signify, it was to promote the unity of man. The unity of the race, if you will. This is a one world movement. A one world movement that was started for the purpose, by the way, of self-preservation. Let's build a tower so high no flood could ever destroy it. Again, it is man's first attempt, post-flood, led by a rebel just like Cain was, to build a society without Jehovah God. Will this city, Babel, will it have religion? Yes. Government? Yes. Commerce? Yes. Just like Cain, they want all of these things. What they don't want is the God of Noah. And folks, it is no coincidence that the first federation of peoples of Babylon epitomizes the last federation, which is called Mystery Babylon, led by the greatest rebel of all and the greatest rebel to come in Revelation 17. Notice what it says three times in verses 11, 3 through 4. Look at verse 3. Let us build with bricks and slime. That's materialism. Let us build a city. That's their socialism. Let us build a tower to heaven. There's their spiritualism. And then let us build a name for ourselves. That's humanism. All of these would be attempted without God. But there's another lettuce. Let us do this. Let us, there's another let us in the text as well. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. What does it remind you of just before the flood? The thoughts of men's hearts and imaginations was only evil continually. And God looks down and says, Here they are again. Trying to build a community, a city, a nation without God. So there's another let us. It's verse Seven, go to, let us, see folks, we believe in the Trinity, let us go down and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Basically, God said, nice try, party's over. This whole idea of glorifying humanity is over. You know, God has never allowed this. God has never allowed man to realize a lasting social order from which he is excluded. They've tried. One world, they're going to try again. They're still trying. They're trying now to get there. 
nor will he ever. And I'm sorry for those who believe that there's going to be a utopia, a progressive, everything progresses until there's some utopia. It's not going to happen. So look, here's the foundation. God creates man. Man sins in the garden. Man is ruined by sin. God promises a delivery from this ruin, from this fall. Man gets so bad that God sends the flood. He cleanses the earth. Man now gets so bad again, he tries to build a coalition of, of, of humankind without God. And once again, the Lord has to step in. He comes down, and in this way, he confounds their efforts by dispersing these people into different nations. How does he do it? By giving them different languages. You know, nothing, if you think about it, really separates people. No barrier between people is any greater, if you will, than the language barrier. It's just tough. Every relationship requires communication. And if you can't communicate, you don't have a relationship. And so, they're scattered. The rebels will be scattered. Years ago, when Ben was really little, I used to do his science, his science lessons. And I remember one of these lessons, there's a lot of object lessons, and I love to do them. One was on surface tension as it relates to water. And on this one day, we went in the kitchen and did it. The experiment was to have a little dish of water, and you would sprinkle some, some pepper on top of the water, and, and that would float there, and you would explain that's surface tension. And then you take this toothpick, and you dip it in some dish soap, and you touch the surface of the water where the pepper is, and immediately the pepper just, it just scatters. That is essentially what God does with these people. He does it through languages. The language barrier was like the soap that scattered the people. It effectively pushed them away from their plans of doing something without God. And it brings to mind the question that anyone should have at this point. What about the plan of God? What in the world? What about God's redemption of man? It just looks like man is hopeless. He cleanses the earth. Noah gets drunk. Ham is shameful. Come along Nimrod and builds a city. We don't want God. What about the promise to Eve that we studied at the beginning of this series that one of her seed would be a deliverer from the evil one and from sin itself? Here, beloved, is where that very promise and that very plan of God begins to open up to us. Look, the Bible is God's revelation to all of us here, to the world, of why we're here, why history has unfolded the way that it has. And the reason why it's here in this book is because until now, God has dwelt with man as a single entity over and over again. But here in verse 10, the entire book of Genesis now is really the entire Bible is, is about one man. There is going to be a permanent shift from this moment on in that God is going to look down at the three sons of Noah. He's going to choose from one of the descendants of the sons of Noah and he's going to establish a whole new nation. Because he says in this book that through that nation, these flawed people, he's going to fulfill his promise that of the seed of a woman, the promise of a redeemer. In other words, God is going to work through a son of Shem from this point in history all the way until all of his promises are fulfilled. Now, 
Do you think that the sons of Shem are better than the sons of Ham and so forth? Not really. As you read in the book of Deuteronomy and the wilderness journeys, you'll find that out. But look at chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Verse 11, and Shem lived and begat Arphaxad 500 years. And once again, look at the line, look at the chronology, look at the genealogy, go all the way down, and you'll notice something that happens in verse 26. It says, and Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Herod. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram. Now I want you to note something. If you watch this genealogy and you read it carefully, it just goes boom, 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 name, name, name. But all of a sudden, God stops. All of a sudden, God steps into this genealogy and he expounds on one name, one generation, the generations of Terah, a descendant, yes, of Shem, who what? Keep reading. Verse 28. Verse 27. These of the generations of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father, Terah, in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. In other words, Abram's brother died. He left his son, Lot, without a father. So that means that Abraham's, or Abram's nephew, Lot, would now be under the care of Terah and Abram. Verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took them wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the, name, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of, of uh, Isaac. And Sarah was barren, and she had no child. Now follow this carefully, all right? Because you'll notice, first of all, that of Noah's three sons, only, only the generation of Shem are magnified and now detailed. And now, of the generation of Shem, only the family of Terah is further magnified and therefore further followed through. Obviously, this is the beginning, this is the foundation. Something's going to change that's going to affect the rest of the future all the way to this very room tonight. All the way to the New York Times that I pulled out of the gas station and meant to read you tonight and left it home. My awesome illustration is sitting on my dining room table. Because what's on the front page of the New York Times, and I knew this would be the truth, is the result of what happens right here in these verses. God's going to do something. Look at verse 31. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came to the Haran and dwelt there. Verse 32, and the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. We're going to talk about this in just a moment, but remember what the world was like at this time. At this time, people were scattered. Languages have divided the people all over the place. Idolatry and false religion are running rampant amidst all these peoples. The truths of Adam and Eve and the fall and the flood and Noah, they're not that far removed, but they don't have the cumulative witness of one people with one tongue that they did have before the flood. In other words, the earth is being corrupted. By all these variations of man-made religions, now pagan rituals, no doubt Satan is having a field day on the face of the earth. And that includes the family of Terah. If you notice on the screen, it says this in the book of Joshua. 
And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of flood in old time. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nacal, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. So, in other words, even his family were idol worshipers. And God says, I'm going to do something about that. God is going to raise up a people and a nation to be a witness. A nation that will be a light to the world. Look at chapter 12, would you? Verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Wow, that's quite a promise. Little nomadic guy, father was an idolater, he's out in the middle of the desert. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant. God said to a Chaldean in the land of Ur, Abram, get up, pack your bags, I want you to go over here. If you trust me, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to make a great name for you. Not just so you'll have a great name. God has a purpose in this. Remember, this is the unfolding plan of God's redemption. And those that bless you will be blessed. Those that curse you will be cursed. And, oh, by the way, where does he tell them to go? Just a little detail. Where is this new country, this new nation exactly going to be? Nations have to have borders. I mean, most of us believe that, right? Chapter 11, look at verse 31. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's sons, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. Chapter 12, verse 5. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and look at the last line. They went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. That's interesting. They came there as if God is waiting for them. Now, folks, I want, you, I want you to stop and think about something for just a moment. This was a long time ago. Look at the world today. Think about this as thousands of years ago. We have noted many times in the past that there's really no earthly explanation for why this land, this little teeny tiny speck of land, <clears throat> it's called Canaan, would become the absolute center of human history. And why? Why is the capital of that land, which is Jerusalem, considered the holiest city in the world by Christians, by Muslims, and by Jews? Why do they all look to that city and that land as the holiest of all? Why is it that in Canaan you have the source of the Bible, where it came from, the entire Old Testament, the entire New Testament, came from this land all the way back at the foundation in Genesis. Why is that land, again, a tiny speck in this vast universe? Why is that the birthplace of Christ, the place of his crucifixion, the place of his resurrection, the place of the apostles, the place of the future apocalypse? All of the prophets. You think about all the prophets are from that land. Beside all of that, 
Why is it that Canaan to this very hour, that's why I would have show, shown you the New York Times, is the home of a people who throughout history have been faulted and blamed for all of the world's ills. For example, look, I'm not Jewish, I'm Irish, American, redneck, hillbilly, I don't know what I am. But we all know that Adolf Hitler blamed the Jews for the problems in Germany, right? But we also know that Idi Amin blamed the Jews for the problems in Africa as well as other African leaders did. We also know that Stalin blamed the Jews, Napoleon blamed the Jews, the Holy Roman Empire and the Crusaders blamed the Jews. We also know that Babylon and Assyria blamed the Jews, the Pharaohs blamed the Jews. We know that the Caesars blamed the Jews. We know that the Persians blamed the Jews. We also know, as I speak, that right now, Assyria and Iran and Iraq and Egypt and the Saudis, the entire Muslim world blames the Jews, and they don't have to be Arab Muslims. Indonesia has 100 million Muslims, and they, even though they're not Arabic, they blame the Jews. Do you realize that in spite of billions, this is not a political statement, it's just observation that in spite of billions upon billions of dollars in humanitarian aid, the people in that Palestinian area cannot build a decent society that their leaders and their de facto leaders who have hundreds of million dollars in Swiss banks do nothing for their people. The Saudis have pumped billions of dollars into Palestine. The United States, we have pumped billions of dollars into that region. And still they live in squalor and poverty because all their leaders have ever said is, it's the Jews' fault. When Osama bin Laden and his Muslim followers attacked America, even Americans, when the towers fell down, the Americans said, it's the Jews' fault because we support Israel. Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, they're only about one thing, destroying the sons of of Abraham. They're all sons of Shem. They want to destroy the sons of Abraham. In fact, all we would have to do to stop a lot of terrorism and hatred is stop supporting Israel and overnight. Just, just let all of the surrounding nations do what they've wanted to do for hundreds and hundreds of years and drive Israel into the sea. Not only will we not be the great Satan anymore, which is what we are, only because we have supported that country, or even before that, before, they were in, before the Balfour Declaration. Oil will be cheaper. This is a 4,000-year-old problem. That's why this is not a political statement. How do you explain, how do you explain it? That in people's hearts, these are just human beings that are fallen like I'm fallen. We're all fallen. How do you explain this little tiny postage stamp of real estate has been the battlefield of the world and is the future battlefield? in a place called Armageddon, right there. And to think, folks, Canaan doesn't even have any oil. Everybody around them has oil. They have nothing. And it really doesn't matter where the Jews are. They can go to Europe, Russia, Argentina, Africa. They're still basically hated. In America, they hate themselves and are self-destructive. And once again, the Bible is the foundation. The foundation gives the only real answer. And the answer is not political. And it's not supporting with money and all of that. 
The answer is this. God came down a long time ago, and he came to a man named Abram, Abraham, and Satan looked up and he said, no. You're going to promise a Messiah through this line? Then I'm going to stop it. I'm going to do whatever it takes all the way to the end. We've studied that last summer. All the way to the end. It's a spiritual issue. Look at chapter 12 and verse 7. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord. Finally, finally, somebody builds an altar to God. Who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and high on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord. Notice all capitals. That's Jehovah God. That's the only God. And called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed going on still towards the south. Why did he journey? Because he believed God. Look, for the next 12 chapters, foundation, for the next 12, 25% of the entire book of Genesis alone, for the next 12 chapters, God is going to tell us about the pilgrimages of one man, Abraham. God spends five times more scripture telling us about Abram and his land called Canaan than he does about creation. You can't rip those pages out of the Bible and let there's something wrong in here. Why does God do that? There is a reason. And the reason becomes more and more evident in the unfolding plan of God. Look, Abraham, that name is mentioned in 16 books of the Old Testament. It is mentioned in 11 books in the New Testament. What are we going to do with that? If you just look at human history, the current situation in the world and especially the future of the world as we have read it, I'll tell you what, it becomes obvious that the life of one man, his one and his brief life compared to Noah and the rest of them, it, makes, it marks the most significant century in the history of mankind. Because why? All right, let's put it this way. You, you're educated. You went to grade school, high school, college, many of you. You read. If there were no Abraham, this one guy, out of all the genealogy, the son of Shem, if there were no Abraham, what else would there not be? Well, obviously, no Isaac, no Ishmael, no Arabs, no Jews, no Jacob, no Joseph, who went into Egypt, therefore no Moses and no law, therefore no Israel. Ultimately, no Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, no New Testament. Imagine a world, can you even imagine a world where there's no Muslims, no Jews, no Christians, no Bible, no Israel, no Reformation, no Renaissance, no Christopher Columbus. Michelangelo would have had to paint something else on somebody else's ceiling because there's no chapel. Da Vinci would have had to paint some other supper. I don't know. No statue of David. No Handel's Messiah. No John or James. I don't know. What would I be named? Steve? <laughs> no, he's in the Bible, Stephen. Think of something else. Nothing in world history would be the same without Abraham. Abraham is the fulcrum of history, but that's only because he's not special. 
That's only because chapter 12 and verse 1 says, the Lord said to Abram. God spoke to man. A businessman, sort of. A man in the middle years of his life, married to a beautiful woman, no children to call his own, living in paganism. God calls him out and says, Abram, pack your bags. And you know, basically God uses his word, as always, and Abraham's response as the first lesson to the entire world that without faith it's impossible to please God. That what pleases God is believing his word. Abraham, this is Hebrews, in the New Testament, believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. You see, folks, look, God has a plan. God has a divine purpose beginning in chapter 1 of Genesis and verse 1 of Genesis, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see with crystal clarity that that plan is right on schedule. Now granted, for centuries, Satan has tried to defeat in any way possible or disperse that plan. Whether it was through Cain, who went out from the presence of the Lord and tried to build a city, or Nimrod, Pharaoh, or Nebuchadnezzar, or Haman, or Caesar, or Titus, or Alexander, or Turkamada and the Inquisition, or Hitler, or Stalin, or Nasser, or Saddam, or Ahmadinejad, or Osama, or the beast of Revelation. It doesn't matter. One of the great Soviet leaders once said, if we try to annihilate, annihilate the Jews from Russia, we'll just give them another holiday. And it's kind of true. They got Passover and Purim and Hanukkah all because they were trying to be annihilated. For centuries and centuries, Satan has done all that he, is, that he could to prevent the promise that God made to Eve and then to Noah and then to Abraham, but always God's plan has prevailed. God said in the first pages of Scripture of a seed of a woman. Think about that. That's sort of like, all right, here, and I'm almost done. This is the picture. Imagine the sun just peeking over the horizon. You just see the very crest of the sunrise. From there, in that promise about the, the seed of a woman in Genesis, to the line of Shem, a little bit more of the sun is starting to come up. And then it says, it's a son, Shem, will have a descendant named Abram, a little more sunrise. Just a little bit more is peeking over the horizon so that Abraham's faith and Noah's and even Moses's with a little light that they had, they believed on that little light. They could never have imagined what we now know. They could never have imagined that this promised Redeemer, this coming Savior, would be none other than God Himself. God, the Creator, born of a woman, dwelling among men that the Creator Himself would come in the form of flesh, born in a humble home, laid in an animal trough, who lived a sin, sinless life. He would cry from the cross those words, it is finished. Finished? Yeah, that redemption? Later in Revelation, He would cry, it is done. That's happening. You know, one of the stumbling blocks for Muslims concerning Christ, if you've ever spoken with them, is that, is that Allah, in their minds, in their hearts, Allah is too great to become a man. That this idea of the condescension of God to come in, in a human form is too great for a great God. But here's the thing. 
If a man loves a woman, if a man truly loves a woman and wants this woman to be his bride, his wife, if he wants her to hear, he, he wants to propose her, he doesn't send a messenger to share his love. He doesn't send an errand boy. Real love wants to share it in person, face to face. You don't send a messenger to your bride, you go yourself. And what God planned all along, the son of Abraham, the son of David, was the son of God. Coming down as a man himself, stretching his hands out on the cross, and saying to his bride, this is how much I love you. I came to this place from the foundations of the world. All of this. All, that's why I don't fret. I don't, I don't wring my hands and fret, go on the internet, try to figure out how you know, Israel this, Palestine this, people this. I don't fret that stuff. That's all right here. What I do do is listen to God's word and pray and hope and ask God to help me trust and believe what he has said. Because everything he has said to this point goes all the way to the very end, and in the end, I read, I skipped ahead, by the way. God wins, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask, Father, that you help us to trust your word, all of it. We know that the machinations of man and man's heart and ideas, the hatred, the anger, the sinfulness, the fallen nature, without you, it just constantly dwells in that world. Thank you for the new heart, the new life in Christ and the redemption through him. We thank you, Lord, that, that Jesus came in the form of flesh. That you can, the creator came to buy our redemption. And I pray, God, we will recognize in Abraham that the just shall live by faith. Help us to trust you in all things, always. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.